All right, let's turn there. Genesis chapter 43. We're going to make it down to chapter 45. And the title of the study is Unlikely Redemption. We're going to see in this chapter Joseph's brothers return to get more grain. We're going to see that Joseph is going to put them through more tests to actually find out where is their heart. Have they truly made a change? He's going to see that they have changed and he's going to reveal himself to his brothers that, hey, I'm the guy you sold into slavery 22 years ago. And he's going to show them grace. And then Jacob is going to learn that Joseph is still alive. And what we're going to read about that with Jacob is that there is, when the report comes to him, I'll say much to my disappointment, there is not a severe tongue lashing that happens by dad to the sons. It's, it's, the issue is not even really talked about. Just like he's alive and he's happy. And there's no talk about the betrayal that's gone on. Why would it be that the scripture is silent about that? We'll get to that in just a few minutes here as we wrap up our study. But let's begin looking at verses 1 through 14 where we see there is a prayer for mercy. So we see in verse 1 that the famine continues on. It's severe in the land. They've already been down to Egypt once. And now the grain that they had brought back up is gone. And dad says, hey, you need to go down there and you need to buy some more food. And, and Judah says, okay, we can go. But the man down there, the man is Zaphonath Paneah, who's Joseph, but they don't know that. So the man down there said, if we come back, we've got to bring our youngest brother so he will know that we are not spies of the land and what we told him and that we had a younger brother back home can be verified. Therefore, our claim to be good men will be established. And Judah's like, I'm not going to give you that. I'm not going to do that. And Judah says, we're not going. We are not going to go down there unless you send Benjamin with this because he's not going to even see us. And um, so we pick up it up at verse uh, 9. He says, I myself, Judah says this, I myself will be surety for him from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh and pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also, arise and go back to the man. Verse 14, and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your brother, which would be Simeon, and Benjamin. And if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. I and mean, what, what am I going to do? If I, if I keep him here, we're going to have no food, we're going to die. If I send him down there, harm might come to him like it came to Joseph, and I will be bereaved of him as well. But I'm out of options. This is the only thing that I can do. But he does pray there in verse 14 for God to show mercy before the man. Now, they keep saying the man, which kind of like we want to fill in the blank. It's, it's Joseph, Jacob. Judah, the man, is your brother. But in this story, they just know it as some, you know, out of control uh, world leader 
who is accusing them of things that they are not guilty of. But Jacob has enough sense to know to pray to God for mercy. Judgment is getting what you deserve. This is what you got on the test. That's your grade. This is judgment, right? It might be good, it might be bad, but that's what you get. Mercy is when you've done something wrong against somebody and you have a debt of some sort to them. It could be financial or otherwise. And you have to um, pay that back. But then they say, you know what, never mind. I'm not going to hold this against you any longer. I'm going to show you mercy. And that's what they're praying for. But they're going to get that mercy, but they're also going to get grace which is not only are they going to be forgiven, but then they're going to be showered with blessings by the man who happens to be the brother they had betrayed and sold into slavery. They just know that they need mercy to deal with this guy who seems to be, uh, has an overactive you know, uh, mind and wants to accuse people of being spies. He's a little bit you know, of uh, a worry, a worrier. And that there's, may this guy be reasonable with us. When he knows that uh, we're bringing back the money, may he, may he be reasonable, may he show mercy. And that's the level at which they're looking for mercy, that we come back with Benjamin, we come back with money, then he will give us Simeon, and we will get Benjamin, and we'll get the grain, and we'll get back home, and then that will be the end of that experience with him. Just give us mercy to have a reasonable interaction with the man. The problem is, the man is Joseph. The level and the degree to which they need mercy is far deeper and higher and wider than they can even imagine. Because they're not just coming to try and present a case that they feel very innocent in and justified in. they got to stand before a man that they're completely and totally guilty of betraying and doing harm. And the thing about mercy... And we've said this several times, so I'm not going to belabor the point here. But the thing about mercy is, with God, it is as high as the heavens, and it is new every, what? Every morning. So how high are the heavens? We don't know. That's good when we're talking about mercy. That the, the volume of mercy is so large, we can't even measure the, the heights and the depths of God's mercy. And you're like, yeah, that might be true, but I promise you, there are days in my life where I use it all up. Well, the good news is, you get to wake up tomorrow morning, and it's brand new. So you have a continual, fresh supply of immeasurable mercy. And with us, when we talk about showing mercy to somebody, depending the, about the circumstances and the person we're dealing with, it, we might feel good about showing mercy, but if we're honest, all of us have been inexperienced and had a time where we were called upon by the Lord to show mercy towards somebody. I can drive them into the ground right now, or I can let them up off the mat, and we know that we're supposed to let them off the map, mat and let them, not map, mat, and let them you know, be set free, liberated from the guilt and the shame and the consequences of what they've done against us or somebody else. And you know that feeling of like, I don't want to let them up. Finally got them right where I want them. Why would I let them up? Why would I say, don't worry about it. Let me show you mercy. God's shown, and, and we struggle with showing mercy to some people. And now we take that attitude of ours and we apply it to God and we think that he is hesitant or he has a problem in showing mercy to us. 
But that is incorrect. Because what the prophet tells us about God is that he delights in showing mercy. That changes everything, doesn't it? That's great that there's a, a continual fresh supply of this mercy. But if I can't get to it, it's no good to me. Might be good to somebody else, but see, God delights in showing mercy. That means when I come to Him, or you come to Him, or we come to Him as the people of God, and we begin to confess our faults, and we begin to ask Him to show mercy to us, that He looks down upon us and says, I'd be happy to. I will be happy to show mercy. This is why we read that a, that a broken and a contrite spirit, the Lord cannot and does not despise or resist. You come to the Lord in brokenness, and He's a softy. How do you get to the heart of the Lord? You know, three kids, my kids, my daughters still do it. But they, they know how to ask Dad for something, and every one of you ladies know how to do that. You know how to go to, and my girls still know, Dad. I'm like, all right, here it comes. What do you want? And they ask it in a certain way, and they're coming in a certain way to to uh, make certain that dad's going to release whatever it is that they're asking for. They almost always get it. And so we don't have to find out that, that special way with the Lord because we've already been told it's a broken heart. It's a contrite spirit. It's just acknowledging and owning what we've done that would cause us to need mercy. And the Lord says, I will be glad to show you mercy. So they're praying For this much mercy, may this man be reasonable. But the level of mercy that they need is like, wait a minute. If if they would have known at this moment that the man was Joseph, and they knew they had to go appear before Joseph, and Dad prays, and Lord Almighty, you know, may you show mercy before the man. And they're like, amen, amen, Lord. We got to go, you know, Dad, we've got to go. But if they would have known that they were going to face Joseph, they would have been, wait a minute, we need to fast before we do this, okay? We need to be on our faces. We need to figure that out. Double the pistachio order. We got to make certain that he will receive us. And there is a sense in which all of us are like that. We never really fully understand the depth of our sin and the mercy that we need. Now, I think God brings us to that place where we can repent and we do see it, but do we ever really see it in its perfect light, knowing the character and nature of the Lord? I think we get to the place where we can have genuine forgiveness and salvation and grow and worship and teach on it, but I think there's always, it's more than just the man. It's your creator. It's, it's the one that holds your next breath in your hand. It's the one that can bring blessing. It's the one that can bring trouble to your life. And yet, it is good to know that even in our ignorance, the Lord is there happy to show mercy. Not just, okay, here you come. Father says, I got to show you mercy. I'm not really happy about it, but come on. No. He delights to show you mercy. So if you're just coming out of a season in your life, or you are in that season right now of just rebellion against the Lord and disobedience, and you're like, I... I'm here today, but man, I just don't know. This might be my last time. I think God's done with me. Listen, he's not done with you. There is mercy before the Lord. And all you've got to do is come to him and confess your need for that mercy. Let's keep reading verses 15 through 26. 
Um, they make it down to Egypt, and Joseph invites them to have a lunch, uh, lunch at his house, and they get reunited with the brother who stayed behind, Simeon, the second oldest brother, the one who consented to all of this betrayal. He would have been the one of authority, and he was the one that was held behind. So the men took the present, that, present and Benjamin, and they took double the money in their hand and rose, went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time, and we are brought in, so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we, need, we indeed came down. So they're basically going to just put the case. We came down. We were innocent men. When we got on our way back home, we stopped, opened our sacks, and we all had money and that so we're bringing this all back so he's trying to like talk to the guy make sure you tell joseph or the man that we are innocent that we have done nothing wrong we've brought these gifts you know from our father we want you to to have them so verse 23 but he said peace be with you do not be afraid your god and the god of your father has given you treasure in your sacks i had your money then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet and gave their donkeys feed. Then they made a present ready for Joseph at, his, uh, at Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand, into the house, and bowed down before them. So again, we see the brothers bowing down before Joseph as that prophetic dream he had at 17 years old indicated they would do. So they, they're reunited with Simeon. He's been taken care of. There's no problems with him. And they are just showing, they're being shown kindness, right? They're invited to a meal. Their feet are being washed. They're, they're, they're going to sit down and, and have an enjoyable time. It's going to be different than any meal they've ever had before, but it's, it's definitely going to be a good one. So while they are at the house, Joseph, verses 27 through 34, wants to test these guys. Remember, he's a little leery of his brothers. He's watched them slaughter an entire town in Shechem. He has watched them do um, ungodly things, ungodly practices, He's been beat up by them, thrown in a pit, and sold into slavery. So if Joseph was there to say, excuse me, I'm just a little skeptical. And I want to find out what has gone on in your life in these last 17 years. Are you the same men? Have you changed? I think this even speaks a world about his character and that he's willing to see change in people's life if changes indeed happen. And so verse 27 he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. So again, 
bowing down. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, Rachel, right? And said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. So he's just overcome with emotion to see his, his family, his full brother. Then he washed his face and came out and restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself, and they by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. So again, they're being tested. First of all, he wants to try and just play with their minds a little bit. He sets them all according to the birth order. Like, how can this be? How can there's no comments about it, but they were just like, How does he know to set us? There's 11 of us, and we're all set in order. And then he gives Benjamin five times more. Why? Favoritism. Remember the whole issue of favoritism back in Canaan, but you know, some 22 years earlier when Jacob was showing favoritism to Joseph, and this made them angry, and this made them jealous, and this led, one of the factors that led to them selling him into slavery and getting rid of it. Are these the same guys? Well, there's one way to find out. Let me show favoritism to my brother. So you had four different wives, um, and Jacob had his 12 sons among these four different wives. And there was rivalry. But the greatest rivalry was the rivalry that existed between the house of Rachel, their, her descendants, and the rest because of the favoritism. So in Joseph's mind, let me show some more favoritism. I will give him five times as much, and you can bet that he had an eagle eye on every one of their responses. Were they wincing? Were they grinding their teeth? Were they like, what in the world? Were they kind of whispering, you know, among themselves in Hebrew, thinking that he can't hear it? But he picks up none of that. The jealousy that seems to have been such an issue, you know, when he was 17, is no longer an issue. And they just sit back and they enjoy the meal. And there's no jealousy whatsoever. That is the thing about jealousy. When you are jealous of somebody else, you can't even enjoy what you have, can you? And so I'm not going to make too much of that point, but if that touches your heart, you can go contemplate that you're not going to find satisfaction in getting what she has or what he has. You're going to find satisfaction in your Lord. And when you do that, then you can sit down and you can enjoy what is placed before you. But he can't eat with them. That was a custom, and he is living like an Egyptian, and so therefore he does not have a meal with them. He's a Hebrew himself, but he's not going to share the meal. And this is often, I mean, in different cultures and down through the ages, even into the present hour, people are, are often unwilling to have a meal with somebody else that they deem unworthy or they believe is not up to their same level. And so this is a problem. Now, the Old Testament 
told Israel that they should distinguish themselves from the rest of the nations by the things that they ate. Now, they took this to a level that was unhealthy, was not godly, was not kind, and so that they would have nothing to do with the Gentiles. And, um, you know, there was, there was nothing that would have uh, kept them back from showing kindness and sharing a meal. They just needed to eat according to their diet, not according to the others. But by the time of the Lord's Day, there was bitter rivalry that existed. And actually, this point that was meant to be a distinction had turned into a point not of distinction, but of disdain towards people of the other nation. And a lot of it centered around what you ate. And so this is why it's always, there's so much information and accounts about people eating or not eating together. Remember, Jesus fed the 4,000 and 5,000. In one feeding, he fed primarily a Jewish crowd. And the second feeding, he fed primarily a Gentile crowd, which was a prophetic miracle. It's basically saying, get ready, my countrymen. They're coming to dinner. These people are going to come on over, and we're going to welcome them in, and we're going to eat with them. And so we, Jesus dies on the cross. He's raised from the dead. The gospel now is going out to all the nations. And it takes a little while for the church, made up of Hebrews, to get it and to understand it. And when it really comes to their understanding is when Peter is there at Joppa and it's, he has the vision of that sheet that has all the unclean animals coming down out of heaven. And he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, I'm not going to do this. And again, the Lord repeated it. And again, he says, no, I'm not going to do that. Eventually, he says, okay, Lord, whatever you say, I will do. And around that time, Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman centurion, sends men from his house, presumably Gentiles, and said, hey, you are invited to come to the house of Cornelius. Now, the law of Moses said that you should have a different diet, but they had taken it to mean you should never be around another Gentile. And so that tradition, that mindset, that prejudice was there in the heart of Peter, but he had just had a vision that said, go and... um, you know, eat these uh, unclean food. And so he sees the significance of what the Lord's doing. These people that he would just treat as being unclean and beneath him, he knows the Lord is saying, go spend some time. So he goes, and in the middle of preaching the gospel to them, they get saved. In chapter 11 he's, of Acts, he's challenged by the leaders and said, how dare you would go in and you would eat with the Gentiles? So he didn't just go to the house of Cornelius. He went to the house of Cornelius and he ate the bacon cheeseburger. He did it and he probably enjoyed it. Who wouldn't, right? I mean, he ate that and, and they're like, how could you go into the house of Gentiles and eat with them? He's like, listen, the Lord's at work here. I wasn't going to resist him. But what we see in that is that that distinction of the old covenant that they should be distinguished by the things they eat among other nations. That was lifted, and now there wasn't a distinction, is that Jew and Gentile alike are being made together into one body to come and dine and meet with the Lord. So you see, there's a lot that's connected with um, eating. And you're like, why are you talking about all of this? It just says that he wouldn't eat with them, because I want you to think about this. Joseph is like the Lord in a lot of ways. But there are some ways in which he's not like the Lord. And here's one. Joseph would not eat with them. But the question is this. Would Jesus eat with you? And the answer is yes 
and he invites you. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The Lord wants to have fellowship with you. No, not me. I'm unclean. No, you. This is the thing that we're reading about as we study through Luke on Wednesday nights, is that the the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the rebellious people of the land, they're coming to Jesus. I mean, it's like this, if you were to watch it, it was like this you know, revolving door of sinners just coming to Jesus. And he would sit and he would eat with them. And the rebuke goes, he eats with sinners. And Jesus is like, you're right, I eat with sinners. Because I'm glad when people are found. I'm glad when people come and experience you know, God again in their life. I rejoice over that. So yeah, guilty as charged, I eat with sinners, to which we can all say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he welcomes us in to be with him and to have a meal with him. That This is your God, right? This is the Lord. So many people want to paint a picture of what the Lord is like, but let the Lord speak for himself of who he is and what he is like. And what he says to you is, come in and dine with me. You know, maybe somebody's speaking into your life and saying, you know what? You're a dirty, rotten sinner, and I'm sure God is disgusted with you, and he wants nothing to do with you. And that's what man may say. But you want to know what the Lord says? You want to sit down and have a meal? I want to sit down with you. I want to bring you in close. I want to have a connection with you. And if the Lord is willing to do that with us, how much more... Ought we be willing to do that with one another? Is there really any justification we could ever give for culture or skin color or race or any other distinction, you know, social class, and say, you know, I really can't spend time with them. I can't be seen with people like that. Well, you know what? Peter, the one who had the whole vision with, about the, the sheet coming down and going to Cornelius, he made that same mistake later on. He was in Antioch and legalists, came up from the south, from Jerusalem, and when they showed up and they didn't approve of sitting down and having you know, double bacon cheeseburgers with Gentiles, all of a sudden, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles and he stopped uh, you know, fellowshipping with them because he feared the legalists more than he feared God at that moment. And Paul writes in Galatians and said, I saw that happen and I called him out. I said right there in front of everybody, what are you doing, Peter? You're playing the hypocrite. And he was rebuked for it. God forbid that we would ever have a higher standard for one another than God even has for us. And you know what it is when we have that? So we like, well, this is, I'm just, I'm concerned about holiness or righteousness. No, you're not. You're just mean. You're a mean person. That's what it is. And you've got to deal with that in your own heart, that you would think that you are above another person. Well, are you saying it doesn't matter if people sin? Well, I mean, I guess if that's the only thing left in your you know, bullet you have to fire at me, no, it's not. That is not the case. We're not saying by being kind and generous to all people and loving people that somehow we don't care about sin. We care about sin, but we also, guess what? We care about people. And we reach out, you know, obviously the, the, the race issue and the tensions that exist in our country are so intense right now. And I, I tell you what, I think one way you can deal with this is to take a page out of Jesus' playbook and go have a meal with somebody that's very different than you. It's not really that different than you. We say that, but what, 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 just have a meal with somebody. 
that's, that you don't know and where maybe the, the culture is saying, hey, there's, there's division and argument. Just say, let's have a meal together. That's how the Lord dealt with it, and I think we should do we'll follow his example. So Benjamin gets five times more. They don't react, and so Joseph is like, okay then. Chapter 44, they, we move on, and um, Joseph is going to again test his brothers to see. Um, last test was, are you jealous? This next test is going to be, will you protect him? Because you didn't protect me. You did harm to me. So at verse 1, he says, He commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry. Put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain monies. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away. They and their donkeys. Remember, they were worried that they weren't going to be able to keep their donkeys. They got to keep them. And when they had gone out of the city... And we're not yet far off. Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? I don't think he, he actually did. I just think that that's what they did in Egypt, and he had it. I think he was a man of God and did not do that. But anyways, let's read on. It says, you have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them and he spoke to them these words and they said to them, why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should, be, should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die and we also will be my Lord's slaves. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. So he, searched. he began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. This is the very thing that Joseph said, or Jacob said, if you don't bring him back, this is going to kill me. And they realize their sin, and they don't want this to happen. And now the very thing that they were most afraid of has just taken place. And so he hid it with them. And um, how are they going to respond? Are they going to you know, say, yeah, we never liked him anyways, actually. Um, this, you know, his mom and that whole side of the family, they're a little weird, okay? So we apologize that Benjamin did this, don't hold it against us, but you can do whatever you want to him because yeah, we don't like him anyways. That's what Joseph is trying to see if it's going to happen. We keep on reading in verse 13 through 34 that Judah, though, is going to step up and he's going to intercede for Benjamin's release. It's a long section. I'm not going to read it all, but this is what takes place. As upon hearing this, Judah decides to come in and defend. Remember, he's given himself as surety back in the land of Canaan to his father. Don't worry, if, if, if Benjamin is taken, I'll give my life for his. And he's going to step up. Now, why is it significant that it's Judah? Because Judah was the one that had the bright idea to sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, which equated to... Ten brothers getting two pieces of silver. I'm sure they would tell you that the guilt in their minds was far more 
than the value of two pieces of silver. So he's going to argue for him. He's going to tell the whole story about how when he was home, he had to have this conversation with his dad, and he promised that he would bring him back, and that if he couldn't bring him back, that, you know, uh, 22, and we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And he just, he's recounting the whole story. And we want to pick it up at verse 30. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, Please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? That would have sounded so different to Joseph. Then let's sell him for 20 pieces of silver. You know, he was totally unwilling to protect his brother before. He was a cause of the harm, and now he is the one that's standing up to redeem. What an unlikely redeemer in brother Judah. But God has done something in his life. He's changed him, and now he's doing the right thing. But the interesting thing about Judah is what significant man is going to come through the lineage of Judah? Who is it? Jesus. Down through the ages, eventually we'll come to the day in which Jesus is born there in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. So in Judah, he becomes a prefiguring of the kind of redemption that Jesus is going to provide. In essence, he says, let the sin of this one Benjamin. Now we know he's innocent, but for the sake of the, the story, he, Judah believes he's guilty. He says, let his guilt and his shame be placed upon me. I will bear it. I will pay the full price for what he has done. I will be a slave. Just don't charge this to his account. Let it be upon me. And isn't that exactly what Jesus has done for us? The lion of the tribe of Judah was born there in Bethlehem, he grew up and he had a body that looked like any of our bodies. He was just a regular human being, although he also was divine. Physically, he looked the same. Spiritually, he was the God-man. Fully God and fully man. But why? Why would God take on human flesh? For one reason. That he might have a body so that flesh could be punished on the cross and that he could pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. We hear Judah pleading for his brother. But our, when we should you know, think, finally, this family's starting to get things straightened out. But we should quickly then think of how the Lord intercedes for us. You have one that is at the right hand of the Father who ever lives to make intercession for you, saying, Father, don't charge her with that guilt. Don't charge him with that wrong. Put it to my account. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he died for all sins, past sins, the sins of his generation, and the sins that will go on until he returns. And it was all laid upon him. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that an amazing trade-off? Jesus takes our sin and he becomes sin. We take his righteousness and we become the righteousness of God. Righteousness of God. That's what you have. If you are in Christ Jesus, you're not just a cleaned up version of you. You have had imputed to your spiritual bank account the righteousness of God. And it has to be that. It must be that. Because if you try to get to heaven with any kind of righteousness other than the righteousness that is like God's, you and I, we will not be permitted into heaven because that is the standard. Perfection. And there's only one man who's ever lived a perfect life, and it's Jesus. But he died on the cross for your sin. But that through faith in him, you could appropriate to yourself that righteousness. And so we stand before God innocent. We stand before God blameless. Now we're a work in progress. God is continuing to sanctify us. But our standing before God is that we are covered by the blood of the Lord and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He has become that redeemer for us. Amazing that God's plan of salvation is I will go to them, they will kill me, and in in killing me, I will pay for their sin, and if they believe that I did that for them, then I will give them my righteousness. That is not a man-made religion. Man does not make religions like that. Man is like, you know, what we got to do is we got to do all these great things for God, and we got to try and earn our way to the Lord. But we can't do that. We can never do that. And that's what all other religions have in common. But what we have in Christianity is that we can't make it to God. Therefore, God has to come to us. Well, Joseph's heart is touched. And as we move into chapter 45, we will see um, his response to his brothers. In verses 1 through 15, he says, all right, you guys are different. You're different. You're not greedy for money. You're not upset over favoritism. And I see that you're willing to protect. You are different men. And so he could not restrain himself. We read in verse 1, and he calls all of his servants to leave the room. And he says to him in verse 3, Then Joseph said to his brothers, and you would have changed his language. Up until this point, they would have only heard him speak in the language of the Egyptians. But now... He speaks to them in Hebrew. He says, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. The word dismayed means to be horrified or to be out of one's senses. And those kind of go together. Their minds cannot compute the horror of what was happening you got to be kidding me. This, I thought he looked like our brother. I mean, I mean, you know, whatever was going through their minds, I mean, they, they just couldn't, they couldn't put it together. All they knew was horror. What is going to happen to us now? What is this guy going to do? He's obviously highly emotional. He's weeping. He's crying. What are his words going to be? What do you expect Joseph to say to them? In verse 4, And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves 
because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you lest you should, you and your household and all that you have, be, have come to poverty for there are still five years of famine. And behold your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin. See that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked to him. Uh, you know there's apprehension. We'll read of apprehension later. But when he says, come near to me, I mean, there's only one way in which he could have said that. Based on everything, he, he must have hey, come near to me. It was like, come here. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what you want. Come here. All the way here. No, crawl, crawl to me. And I want you to, can we recall any dreams right now? Anything going on that seems familiar to you? There is none of that attitude. There is none of that embarrassing kind of uh, anger. He, he's, he says, don't even be grieved at yourself. Don't be angry with yourself. God was at work here. He's the one that sent me ahead of you. Wow. He has a pretty high view of the sovereignty of God, doesn't he? He's not sitting there and going, you did this to me, and you did this to me, and do you know how many sleepless nights, and Judah, can you, you know, he didn't do any of that. He just like, listen, my God's on the throne. Our God's on the throne, and he wanted to save you. You can hear the joy in his voice that he was sent ahead to take care of them. There's no bitterness. There is no anger. This is, uh, I mean, it truly is a miracle what God has done in his heart. Joseph did not allow the sin of others to, de to define who his God was. Joseph did not let the sin of others define who his God was. He came to know who his God was through his own personal action, interaction and the revelation that God gave of himself. Write it down. Don't let other people's sin define who God is. Do you want the sin of your family and the, you know, that one relative that kind of has got the reputation in the family? Do you want your reputation to be defined by her or by him? Or do you want to be defined and known for the man or the woman that you are by the way you live your life? It's unfair that I would be judged as being that kind of a person based upon them. I don't approve what they've done. I told them not to do it. But who does that sound like in one sense? Well, God never is groveling to man. But, you know, it's like, God, you're not good. I'm not good. Yeah, this person sinned against me. That's a reflection on them, not me. I'm the one that told them not to do that. I'm the one that hung on the cross because of that sin. 
I'm the first in line to condemn it and the first in line to raise you up. Why are you putting their sin upon me as if that's my character? That is not my character. And Joseph does none of it. Joseph doesn't say things like, well, you know, do you guys know how bad you've messed me up? I don't know if I even believe in God anymore. He doesn't say any of that. He's like, my God is in control. He has such a high view of the sovereignty of God. He even goes and says, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. There is such freedom and there is such liberty and there is such peace when we understand the sovereignty of our God. And Joseph goes on to show them such grace, doesn't he? So we move through verses 16 through 24. Um, he sends them back home. He sends U-Hauls with them to bring all the stuff back down to Egypt. They're called carts here, but it's U-Hauls. And um, he doesn't offer to go up there. He says, no, you can haul it on your own cart. But I, come on down. We'll give you the land. I'm going to give you the best of the land. And then we read in verse 22, he gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garment. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys. I mean, just the grace is just being poured out. And that's what happens when you come to the Lord. When you come to the Lord, He forgives you. And He doesn't accuse you. And He pours out blessing after, um, upon blessing upon your life. So verse 24, He sent His brothers away and they departed. And He said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. In verse 25 through 28, where we wrap it up, they went out, up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father, and they told him, saying, a funny thing happened while we were down in Egypt this time, Dad. You're never going to believe it. I mean, who do you think we ran into down in Egypt? Uh, Joseph. Joseph who? Joseph, your son from Rachel. Joseph is alive? Oh, praise the Lord. I thought he had been eaten by a wild beast. Remember, you guys brought his tunic in and so it was soaked with blood. We all thought that he had been eaten by a wild beast. And he, oh, how terrible. Who would ever sell somebody into slavery? Now listen, we don't have any of that conversation going on, which really disappoints me. <laughs> because I, I, you know, I want to hear him let them have it. How could you guys do this? You know, I'm going to Egypt. You're staying here. You know, it's like, it, but he does it. It's just, there's nothing there. I mean, who was nominated to tell? I think it probably was Judah. I think Judah, he becomes the spokesman. It's just my, I think they're all standing there and they've got to confess to their dad their secret sin. It's not so secret anymore. The whole world knows about it. Here we are, how many thousands of years later, and we're still talking about their secret sin. But why is it that we have nothing? Now, you can't make an argument from silence of Scripture. So just put a question mark by this point. I think this maybe ties into the fact that when the Lord forgives us of our sin, He remembers it no more. He doesn't bring it up again. These guys have been forgiven Grace has been extended to them, and we see that Jacob doesn't say a word about it in Scripture. I imagine he had said something to them um, in real life. But we don't see it here, which is just reflecting the mercy and the grace of God, that he doesn't bring things up 
to make us feel guilty and grind us into the ground when we've already repented. But you know these secret sins that they had and they had hidden for 22 years, they're all out in the open now. And the Bible warns us about hiding our sin. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. There's no secret sin before the Lord. The Lord sees it all. Wow, you know, I'm afraid to come in repentance. I just don't know how the Lord's going to receive it. He already knows it. He already knows your secret sin. And He calls you, He calls us to repentance. Numbers 32, 23 says, But if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. The Lord loves us too much to let us continue in sin and not bring us to repentance. Now, his preferred way of bringing us to repentance is to have conviction when the word comes. And we're broken, and we respond, and we humble ourselves before the Lord, and we repent. But when we refuse to respond to that, the Lord can use other means to humble us. And one of the means by which he uses to humble us is to make our sin public. Not the preferred route to go. But God will do that to bring us to that place where we will repent. So if the Lord has been speaking to your heart about the need to make things right with him, and you keep acting as if that sin does not exist, then take advantage of the space he is giving you up until this moment to get it right with the Lord, who is one that delights in showing mercy and is ready to pour out grace afresh. Father, thank you for your mercy, and thank you for your grace. Lord, we all need it. And Lord, if there be any of us who think we've outgrown the need for mercy or grace, and maybe we've never come to that conclusion, we pray that you would speak to us, Lord. You would show us that we haven't just sinned against a man, we sinned against you, our creator, the judge of our soul. Thank you, Lord, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance.